This is What's Next from American Security Project. I'm Maggie Feldman-Pilch. The second season of What's Next was supposed to be, or is supposed to be, dedicated to young voices in national security and up-and-comers. But there are certain people that you make exceptions for. And we are lucky enough today, for this week's episode, to have one of those exceptions with us. I am joined today by none other than Senator John Warner, served 30 years in the US Senate, uh, representing the wonderful state of Virginia, and a number of other incredible career opportunities that we will get into. But Senator Warner, thanks for joining us. Well, I'm very pleased. Uh, You, indeed, as you said in your intro, you have one of the old swamp foxes, (laughs) as Trump would say. Swamp fox. Well, I mean, he's quietly in quasi-retirement as regards to politics, quite active still, even though I'm 90 years old, at my law firm, and enjoying life, doing what I want to do when I want to do it. And uh, I've known your organization for a long time, and it's a very outstanding one here in Washington. And, you know, in our discussion, uh, I, I want to inject this one thought. You talk to me about the government as I've seen it evolve through my 40-plus years in public service. Uh, the biggest change is the growth of the independent, outspoken think tanks of what we call them, such as yours. You have a very distinguished role in your think tank. But when I first was in government, say as Secretary of the Navy, uh, you could count the number of think tanks on 10 fingers. Sure. Uh, Today, it's pushing 100. But they are playing a very vital role and I think are filling in the... Uh, the sort of the intellectual contribution of collectively that they provide uh, filling in for the gap that's created by the inability of Congress to work more smoothly Mm -hmm. with the executive branch and each sort of stands on its side of the fence and fires back across at it at each other the think tanks can come in and give their independent views and you'd be surprised When I was in Congress, we listened. We paid attention. When we were given opportunities like this, we took them to come up and and work with the independent thinkers here in Washington, much like this organization. If I could just launch in a minute, having observed this city for a lifetime, actually I spent 42 years in various public offices, I think my first one was the most important, and that is at 17, uh, during the last years of World War II, I joined the Navy, and that was quite an experience. Um, I'm not pretending to be a hero, but the Navy trained me beautifully in those days, as it did many thousands and thousands of young men. But um, so much has happened in my lifetime, and I'm very grateful to this country for the opportunity to have had a number of interesting challenges in public service. So I'll talk, hoping some young person might get some, wisp a little inspiration out of what I was able to achieve. I think that's a perfect reason to, to sit down for an interview. And of course, you're, 
you say you were you were known for you know being bombastic. I I don't know that that's necessarily changed despite being ninety. Um, and as you said, you're a busy guy. Uh, you're quasi retired. An emphasis on the quasi retired. Um, and there's a reason why, given what the world looks like right now, or what it could look like, um, that people come to you, whether it's formally or informally, for advice, for your take on what the world looks like. Um, so I have to ask, when you look out at the world today, in you know spring of 2017, what concerns you? And I'm sure many people ask you that question, so we'll ask you that first, but I'll also ask you, what gives you hope? Well, I look upon America as a lighthouse, the beacon of hope that we radiate from our shores to the rest of the world. And you stop to think, for many years, up to the brink of World War II, we were pretty much withdrawn within ourselves. Uh, We might call it very strong in conservatism and principles and Uh, the rest of the world kind of be damned. We're on our own. But we were drawn into that war, and uh, I was able, as a young man, to observe a lot of it. Uh, I was raised by a father, a medical doctor, a very prominent surgeon, gynecologist here in the nation's capital, who had been in World War I in the trenches as a doctor, and taught me a lot of history about how this country Uh, really, and I say that respectfully, came to the rescue of Europe Mm -hmm. at a time when, had we not done so, Europe might look totally different today. It's another subject. We're celebrating as a nation now the 100th anniversary of America's entry into World War I, an epical chapter of advancement in our nation's life. But today, it's, it's an ever more complex swift-moving situation. Uh, Take today. I arose at my usual hours. I like to watch, uh, frankly, Morning Joe and uh, other shows on news. I am a news junkie. (laughs) Shocking. Always will be political (laughs) in that sense. But uh, we're experiencing with President Trump, whom I do not know, but except as a citizen, having learned I was out of office when he came in and political arena. Uh, It's an interesting, fascinating, challenging world, but there are two things that stand out in my mind. One, the world is an ever more dangerous place, primarily because of the enormity of advancement in science leading to weapons of all types which are no longer tightly under control by the major nations but are infiltrating at all levels. I mean, people are concerned justifiably about North Korea today. Uh, I happened to, again, served briefly in the Navy in World War II, and then I joined the Marines later, and I served in Korea, complex country. And this was 19, uh, let's see, I was in Korea 51, 52. Um, And here we are today faced with the same struggle that uh, my generation uh, fought out and a lot of my generation paid a high price. Sure. uh, Life and limb to try and liberate that country. 
Well, we got half of it done, but the other half is now uh, the focus of a lot of, understandably, apprehension by the rest of the world because of the possession of, uh, I would not say an unknown quantity of fissionable material and weapons of mass destruction, but uh, uh, we have every reason to believe that they possess and are continuing to do experimentation and work on these weapons. And then how they may use them is hanging over the head of not only of that part of the world, that, sure. those continents, but the rest of us. Because if we were to ever engage once again in the use of these horrible weapons of mass destruction, namely the nuclear bombs and so forth, it's going to impact the whole world. It's not going to be just localized. Sure. So we emerge, what is America's role? Again, I come back to the lighthouse. Uh, the world looks to our nation for leadership. And we have given it, I think, quite well during the course of my lifetime. Put aside my minuscule contribution, whatever I was doing. But the world has benefited from America's leadership. I started my first job in politics as working in the Eisenhower-Nixon White House. General Eisenhower, uh, whom I, just as a young staffer, saw him. He was polite to me on one or two occasions, but he was an extraordinary man. And um, uh, General Marshall at that time was an extraordinary man. I'm talking about the leaders we I saw at a distance, so to speak, and studied their works. But we were the pillar of security that radiated to the world. And today we still occupy that role, whether we like it or not. Right. And we've got to fulfill it. And uh, right now, to use a trite phrase, things are shake, rattling, and rolling in a lot of different directions. Mm -hmm. And each day, it's almost like a beach. The sands have shifted overnight with the winds and the currents of what took place in the previous 24 hours. Yeah. So have at me. Go ahead. Well, I, I don't know that it's fair to say that, that whatever minuscule role you've had, but I'll let you take that liberty since it's your life. Um, but, you know, you were known for leadership on an enormous number of issues. In your 30 years in the Senate, you spent 17 of those as either ranking member or chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee. Um, you and your three other horsemen, of course, leading the charge on the GI Bill. Um, now, that's interesting. Chuck Hagel is a member of this. That's right, and has been on our podcast and is the one that told me I have to sit down with you. So. Well, that's thoughtful. <laughs> uh, he's, he's really an extraordinary, wonderful man, very self-effacing, modest in many ways. I was privileged to introduce him to be Secretary of Defense, and that, he gave it a good shot. He definitely um, did. And I think he, he he handled it very well, and he came out of there, and he didn't come out swinging and, and uh, this, that, and the other thing. Quietly went back to doing those things where he thought he could continue to serve this country quietly. But uh, he and I and uh, Frank Lautenberg and Jim Webb, a very interesting man who served with me in the Senate, he was actually a, a military aide to me when I was Secretary of the Navy. Oh, my. He came right off that. the battlefields of Vietnam, badly wounded, and he was recuperating, and the Commandant of the Marine Corps said, uh, Secretary Warner, you ought to have a man like this with fresh perspectives of what the young people are 
doing in Korea, the sacrifices they're making, and yeah. so forth. So we've always remained good friends. But the four of us put together a great GI Bill. I benefited from the World War II GI Bill enormously, and uh, my generation did. It was one of the finest things America ever did for its returning military after a conflict. Uh, but it needed to be brought up to date, and we really brought it all the way up and gave full recognition to the fact that now more and more women are taking important roles in the, in the military structure. And uh, the, the, whether you're male or female, you get your GI Bill, and perhaps your lifestyle or your career or your responsibilities not, do not enable you to go on to uh, university or uh, ed education. So we made the provision, which was quite drastic, they can pass it on to their children. Mm -hmm. And uh, that has worked out exceptionally well for the benefit of all America. Absolutely. And you made mention of something you're also known for. Um, you know, you said Jim Webb uh, was your military aide, and he was brought to you because it was thought you needed some fresh perspective from young people. And in your time in the Senate and your other years in public service, you're, you've really been known for not being afraid to engage with young people and including them in meaningful ways on your staff, maybe coming and interviewing with them on their podcast. Um, so I wonder, what is it about young people and this fresh perspective that you find so valuable for public service? Well, it, it, incidentally, if I was to give you a personal note, sure. one week ago this Friday, last Friday, I, my wife and I uh, gave a reception for 140 former staff people and their their wives. Wow! Uh, just my way of saying, as I turn 90, hey guys, you made it possible for me to succeed and do the things that I wanted to do for the country as a public servant, and I'm everlastingly grateful. Well, they had a wonderful time. Uh, of course, <laughs> I gave a little short speech, but then to watch the, the enormous electricity among these very bright people, put myself to one side, but the staffs were the best. Um, and they stayed with me a long period of time. They just didn't roll in and roll out right. a year or two. Some of them spent uh, 20 years with me. And um, to watch them network and talk about the problems today and the exciting I just went away with the feeling, hey, as I fade out from the scene, there's another generation coming in behind me, more powerful, more energetic, you know, more challenging than my generation. So America's in good hands, but we must remember that we are the oldest continuously functioning democratic republic form of government in existence today. All others since 1776 have gone into the dustbin of history. And somebody argued with me, what about Switzerland? Well, if you okay. go back, wait a minute, Napoleon invaded Switzerland in the right. 1800s, and that government was severed for about two years, and he's reputedly turned and said, I'm going back home, it's too damn cold over <laughs> here. So, um, so that doesn't count, there were that, two But that years. brings America to the forefront again. And we've got wonderful people in this country, and, and given, the op given the opportunity, they'll do well. I, I think that's accurate, and though there are some times where 
citizens find themselves frustrated with their representatives. Whether That's it be good. The, That's as, fine. As we should be. A little tension is healthy. And the role of Congress, particularly as it relates to national security, has changed so much you know, since 1944, since the National Security Act of 1947. And I wonder, in your mind, what should the role of Congress be in terms of national security you know, going forward with how different the world is? All right. The uniqueness and strength of the United States is based on the concept of the balance of power between three separate but co-equal branches of government, your judiciary, your executive, your legislative. And I always looked at it as a stool. And as long as each were doing their job, the stool is level. It is strong. But if one leg begins to weaken, the stool tilts, and that's not good. And I'm concerned uh, about the Congress today, as I think many of us are, and indeed, as I visit with my colleagues, they are concerned. But here's a, a, a contrast. In the 30 years that I was there, uh, the, the statistics, and I checked it before coming on your show this morning, I checked it. In the period of the 30 years I was there, Congress was composed of individuals, largely men. The first woman uh, came with my class in terms of being the first, and for 10 years, the last one had finished a distinguished career, Margaret Chase Smith of Maine, uh, and then gap for, for 10 years, not a woman in the Senate. Then Nassim Katzebaum came in my class from Kansas. Wonderful woman, strong woman. And then we've now built up to a good uh, proportion, 20-odd in, in the Senate. But in my era, between 75 to uh, sometimes over 75% or a little under 75, but around 75 pivoting, all were veterans. That's right. It's interesting. The majority being World War II. Hmm. Then there was a contingent from the Korean War. And, you know, I had a little tiny minuscule piece in both. Um, then um, Vietnam, the first one, John McCain, others sure. started coming in. And um, there's a certain inherent discipline in every person who has the privilege of, in their lifetime of wearing the uniform of our country. And that is your interdependence on your fellow airman, marine, soldier, sailor. Right. Because depending on your assignments, sometimes your duties are quite risky. And often your duties are dependent on working in tandem with others. And so you have to have a sort of a mutual trust and respect. Because if one fails to do their job, falls asleep at night from exhaustion or something, you're in jeopardy. Right. So that cohesiveness prevailed in the institution of the United States Congress. I think the House was much the same, but I can't tell you the acts, that statistic. Sure. But that's an important factor. So even though we fought with each other by day, at by night, we used to have a drink, and our sure. wives, fortunately, were there, and we got along, and we solved the problems the next morning and went All on and well. did our business. Um, and at that time, media 
was contained. It, we had the wonders of radio. Sure. Television was emerging. Television came into the Senate. And, uh, and, uh, and a lot of other dramatic changes took place in my 30 years. But bottom line, you've got to work in tandem with your colleagues. And some percentage of us, and I was one that tried, had to work across the aisles. Absolutely. You had to go over and work with the opposition party. Opposition in the sense, if you were in the majority, they were in the minority. Right. And so that's why during my 17 years I was either chairman or ranking, it's because as the leadership of the Senate shifted with right. the majority party. But um, that remains. And um, it's not to say that the current generation, I think now there's only 20 some odd members right. of we're veterans. Actually, we're at an all time that, low. Yeah, all time low. Certainly it's in the context of World War too. Sure. But uh, there's good people, and the rest of them, fortunately, our country hasn't been involved right. in huge military commitments, significant ones, Iraq, yes. Afghanistan, so forth, but not to the volume that we had 16 million men and women in uniform in World War II, and then many million, several million in Korea and so forth. Um, so they just don't have the generated. But Congress must work. And the other thing has changed, again, is media. Sure. Uh, we had our radio show. You popped on your radio show, and you did a little television if you were invited. But basically, you were out traveling in your districts and working with local newspaper people, marvelous people, and, and the local papers. And the local papers in my state, and I think it's true in others, they were really in a slot in the area. They didn't go beyond the next county, some of right. them, you know. And so you could come in, kind of shape your story to fit with the what made sense demography the, of yeah. that county. And it's then politician. pack up your car and sail down the road 100 miles or 50 miles and Do the next tell one. a slightly <laughs> different story. Well, that's not possible today with Facebook right. and all of the other media things that are focusing on the members of Congress. So we have to be indulgent that they are... It's a stressful job being in Congress. It's hard on the families. Sure. And regrettably today, many families decide, hey, mom and the children have to stay home. Right. Or the spouse, in the case of the female members, their spouses elect to stay home. And that diminishes the conviviality we had in the after hours at night and the trips we used to take together and so forth. So it's a change thing. It's a challenge. But... The stool hasn't fallen over. It's not tilted. But I'll tell you today, given uh, this executive branch and legislative, it's being tested. It is being tested. And, and do you think we're up but for that? But that check and balance of the three, that's the strength of America that's kept it going. And you think we're up for the challenge? You think our stool, it, our stool yes, will remain? Yes, we're up to the challenge. I'd, I happen to agree. It's, you know, it's a little unnerving sometimes. Um, particularly over the last few months, there have been all these conversations, you know, as different activities transpire. Are we in a political crisis? Are we in a constitutional crisis? And I don't know that any of that is really true. <coughs> and I wonder when you look back on your entire career in public service, so as a sailor, 
a Marine, a Senator, an Undersecretary of the Navy, Secretary of the Navy, as a staffer. And and the Executive Chairman of the, of the Bicentennial, you know, which right, was a which, fascinating job. Which sounds like probably the most fun of them all. It was fun because <laughs> I traveled to all 50 states. Really? And some 18 countries abroad negotiating what they would give America by way of gifts. Uh, President Nixon, birthday. when he called me in, uh, he was the rumbling of Watergate was in the distance, and he said, "I want not to be remembered as someone who neglected to give America a chance to really learn about itself on its 200th anniversary, to celebrate it in a way that each individual state thinks most appropriate." So Warner, I'm setting up a little private government entity. You be the head of it. You're going to have all the money you want to distribute to the states to do those things they want to do. And then also help with the federal programs. We had a number of federal programs to honor the bicentennial. And frankly, the people took charge. Uh, I had a role in it. And all members of Congress were happy to be joined in the bicentennial was the one time we got total <laughs> bipartisan unity Everyone. of every member of the House and the Senate. So from that experience, I wonder what is, what is the most, you know, sometimes I like to ask people who their favorite or strangest world leader interaction was, which I will probably ask you, but in terms of the bicentennial, having that experience of going to all the states and then, you know, negotiating with these 18 countries, what did it show you in terms of how the American people see our country and how it's different state to state? Well, the dynamism of the American people in wanting to make things work in their own little villages and cities and states, at the same time they recognize the importance of the cohesiveness of the 50 states as we focus on our duties in the world and for our elected leaders to project Again, the lighthouse, the beacon of hope uh, for the rest of the world as they face their varied and really, in many times, extraordinary perilous situations. I mean, there's not a one of us, irrespective of his or her politics, it is deeply saddened about the human suffering, whether it's Syria or other parts of the world, where many poor people lack the benefits of just simple fresh food and water. Absolutely. And there's, a, there's an emotional pull there, right? It, it impacts all of us. And so when, you know, citizens or think tanks or whoever, you know, they want it, we want to get involved. How, how do you think is the best way to do that as somebody who represented a state for 30 years? You know, what, what was most useful to you from your constituents? Well, I had something of an unusual career in the sense that in my state, uh, it was dominated by the Democrat Party for 100 years. Mm -hmm. There was no Republican U.S. senator until the, my predecessor in the Senate served one term. Mm -hmm. He was the first Republican U.S. senator for Virginia in 100 years. Wow. And then I was a senator named Bill Scott. He's since passed on now. I, he only stayed six years and resigned, and then I, it was an open seat, and I filled it. But I sort of parachuted in from the top. 
I'd been Secretary of the Navy, which was enormously important to Virginia. Yeah. We have the major naval base in the world. We have many military installations. Absolutely. And that gave me a base of support that I'd been at working with for five years in the Pentagon. Sure. So that was helpful, and I was able to do it. While most persons in public elective office come up through the chairs, they start with their local city council. And that I wished I had had those opportunities. I had them, but I didn't avail myself. City council, or uh, then they get to their state legislature, and then they may become you know, attorney general of the state or lieutenant governor. And then the all supreme power of every state is the governor. governor absolutely. And you'd be surprised how many governors eventually go to the Senate. Sure. But, oh, no, old John Warner floats along. <laughs> Everybody thought I was crazy to even try it. you got to do I things did. your own way. I did it. And we had a big, conv- well, it's a sort of a primary among four of us, very eminent men, and um, a former governor, a former state legislature, and everything, and old John Warner, and um, I lost in this convention. There were over 10,000 people that gathered in the Virginia Coliseum in Richmond. Uh, some of them only had 120th of a vote, but they all <laughs> wanted to come. And it was democracy at its yeah. best. And we started at 10 o'clock in the morning, and we were rolling at midnight. And when the final vote was taken, and I lost by a few votes, just a narrow margin, but I uh, got up the next morning, went to a breakfast for the winner, I gave him a check, and campaigned for him. And then tragically, tragically, he was lost in a small plane coming in some night off a campaign mission, and it hit a tree, and he lost his life. And then we only had three months I mean, nine weeks wow. to the election, and a lot of people looked at it and said, uh-uh. But old Warner, he said, okay, I'll Weather's try impossible. it again. yeah. And I'll remember very well my wife at that time was a very wonderful lady. She was invited to be the Grand Marshal of the Dublin Horse Show. And she'd been in the movie and the actress business for years. She loved Dublin and Ireland. She was born in England. And we were all packed up to go to the Dublin Horse Show, including yours truly, with (laughs) my own little kit to ride horses, which we loved. We both had a big farm and rode horses. And then the tragedy of that, and everything stopped in our lives. And uh, the party turned to us, and we carried the banner, and I only won by one half of one percent. Wow. 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 And then it was contested, but finally it worked itself out. And then I've had a marvelous career. I've five times reelected. That's incredible. Well, it is, but I'm very modest about it. You really are, and and I know that I try you, to be. your reputation in that regard precedes you. And in a city where that doesn't happen often, I imagine that after being here for so many years, um, it, you must have some sort of reaction to louder types who are a little more excited about all the things they've done and are really eager to talk to you about it. Um, well, I, I can't say that I was uh, anything but a good old robust, uh, argumentative, tough senator, but I got along and I crossed the aisle. Um, 
I had good friends that I worked with on both sides of the aisle. And my party took me to task on that more than once. Well, we're grateful for them letting you stay around. Uh, Senator Warner, we like to ask everyone who comes on our show one final question. Yes. And that is, what do you think is next? For, what, do you, what do you think is next for America, for the world, or even for you? And what would you like to be next? If you could pick one policy change or one, you know, whether it's climate change or North Korea or more veterans in, the mili- in, in uh, elected office. Well, I love Ben Franklin's quote. Um, when they emerged weary and tired from the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia, a reporter like you asked him, what have you wrought? And he said, a republic if we can keep it. We must keep this republic. So we should always find ways to settle our differences, to develop a policy that's not just in the interest of the United States, but the whole world. I say that because we're a global community today. We no longer were isolated as we were in 1940-41 when the war broke out. Twice we have gone to work with our European allies to save that part of the world, I think, from many distressful situations. So we've got to continue to be like we've always been, to be just as tough and to keep that republic that Franklin said we have wrought. Senator Warner, thanks for joining us on What's Next. It's, it's been a pleasure, and you're a superb interviewer. Thank you. I, it you, is much appreciated you from you. did not rack, rack my knuckles with severity. I never would. <laughs> I don't have it in me. Uh, uh, yes, you yeah, do. Yeah, I probably do. <laughs> Bye-bye. Thanks.